Welcome to episode 138 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. I'm joined today for the news roundup uh, uh, by Maury Schenk, um, formerly a managing partner in our London office and still affiliated with us uh, for a variety of technology and cybersecurity issues. Uh, and uh, who has uh, uh, more other irons in the fire than anyone else I know. Uh, uh, and by Katie Castle, an attorney in our re- international regulatory compliance group, uh, but sadly uh, soon to depart for uh, what I guess I can call the government. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, she will not be a stranger to national security, but she Probably will be on maybe one more of our uh, podcasts. I should be, yes. Okay. Uh, well, uh, it's been it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast, and uh, we look forward to hearing great things if uh, your great accomplishments are not all classified. <laughs> Thanks, Stuart. Okay, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the record holder for returning to step down to practice law more times than any other lawyer. Why don't we jump right in? Uh, we'll be doing a uh, uh, an interview on. Uh, uh, what does the, the Trump presidency mean for cyber law uh, with uh, Paul Rosenzweig, uh, who was the former deputy assistant secretary for policy at DHS uh, and a noted cyber commentator, I should say, and formerly uh, 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 a superb deputy to one Stuart Baker at DHS. Uh, and Shane Harris, uh, familiar to all who follow the uh, Lawfare podcast uh, uh, and a Daily Beast reporter. They're going to come later. Uh, and so uh, for now, we'll just do the pot- the uh, news roundup. Uh, well, I, I, I have to say we did not cover the... Um, uh, the request for a stay that LabMD made to uh, uh, the 11th Circuit, uh, but uh, we have to cover this. Um, You know, there's a saying on Wall Street that bulls can make money and bears can make money, but pigs invariably get slaughtered. And boy, is the FTC learning that lesson. Uh, They're pig-headed decision to refuse a stay uh, in a context where uh, uh, the company is flat on its back, the data is stored in a computer that isn't even plugged in, uh, uh, and they still wanted to impose millions of dollars worth of uh, 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 measures on LabMD pending appeal, led, of course, uh, LabMD to file a request for a stay from the 11th Circuit. And, you know, the 11th Circuit could hardly, I mean, this, it, the decision that they wrote, uh, denying this, or granting the stay might as well be a decision on the merits. Uh, uh, they talk about uh, the likelihood of success, uh, uh, as obviously a major part of the consideration, um, uh, in whether to grant a stay. And, uh, there the question is whether, uh, uh, the practice that uh, uh, LabMD uh, uh, was found to have engaged in uh, is likely to cause substantial injury. There's no sign that anybody actually has had medical information compromised as a result of this. Uh, and uh, um, the court says, yes, of course, we're going to give you Chevron deference and we're going to look at the um, uh, uh, plain meaning of the statute and your reference to uh, the dictionary. And then they just 
unload on them. Uh, you know, uh, we're reading the same dictionaries, they say, but we came to a different conclusion. Uh, uh, it, uh, we don't think that uh, there's any, uh, you know, that there's really a good reason to believe that uh, uh, there's a substantial risk to consumers, uh, uh, and on and on. Um, uh, they say, well, you, of course, we're not ordinarily treating compliance costs as irreparable, but in this case, given that the FTC is um, immune as a sovereign and that we can't recover them, uh, we're going to treat them as uh, irreparable injury, um, uh, and on and on. So uh, the FTC just poisoned its own well uh, with this, uh, um, and really couldn't happen to a nicer agency, given what they've done to LabMD, which also, just to add insult to injury, announced that... Uh, they're going to have a television miniseries about the story of LabMD fighting the devil inside the Beltway. Uh, uh, I'm, uh, I'm not sure it's going to be Homeland, but uh, at least they won't have as many uh, expenses going on location. Anyway, so that's that is the uh, the lead case. I just couldn't resist it. Uh, uh, there's also a DMCA exemption that uh, we ought to cover. Uh, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act says in a kind of very um, grudging exception to their rule that if you break encryption uh, uh, that is designed to protect uh, uh, copyright, uh, you're automatically uh, you know, uh, subject to massive penalties. Uh, uh, they said, but uh, it's possible for the uh, Librarian of Congress, I guess, to grant exemptions for a couple, three years, just a little while, just to see how they go. Uh, uh, and uh, there's now an exemption, which finally took effect for security researchers. Uh, uh, and Katie, you looked at that? Yes, yes. So um, so the rules were actually issued last year, um, and they uh, decided to have just the security research exemption kind of delayed in its implementation by a year. Um, in the Federal Register notice, it explains it's because uh, they wanted to give the administration time to respond because parts of the administration hold very divergent views on the issue of security mm -hmm. research. Um, and what the hell? It's not like there's a security problem that, that was an emergency. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so so it only applies to good faith security research, um, which requires that the device be lawfully acquired um, the activity be solely for the purpose of testing, investigating, or correcting security flaws, um, that it be carried out in a controlled environment so that it can't cause harm, and that it uh, comply with other laws like the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Hmm. Okay, so it's pretty limited even as, uh, the, now that it's taken effect, it's still not exactly uh, a hunting license for security researchers. Right, exactly. You still have to, you still have to comply with those requirements. So. But at least this means that if you're trying to figure out uh, what's wrong with your car, or your, uh, whether there's a risk that your car is going to be taken over, or your tractor, or almost any sophisticated consumer good is going to come with bunch of IP protection and that includes uh, encryption and makes it hard to understand what's happening inside the uh, the works of the uh, uh, the product uh, and this at least allows security researchers to dig into those products right all right um, so Yahoo um, released a statement uh, uh, to the SEC uh, uh, talking about um, its um, famous 500 million uh, uh, subscriber breach 
um, and saying things that uh, I must say are uh, pretty troubling. Apparently, they somebody at Yahoo did know about this breach uh, two years ago. It was a state-sponsored, uh, according to uh, Yahoo. Um, some of the compromise included uh, encrypted or unencrypted security questions and answers. My, I hate security questions and answers uh, because the, usually they're facts. If you can remember them, somebody can find them on Wikipedia or elsewhere in your uh, uh, digital profile, so they're not very good security. Uh, and if you make up the answers, you can never remember what answer you made up. Uh, at least that's my experience. Uh, so uh, having uh, uh, those security questions available is um, pretty bad. Uh, they didn't disclose it then, and uh, they have now had they have a board investigation to find out why uh, or what happened there. Uh, they didn't disclose it until September of 2016, um, uh, just a couple months ago, um, and they say you know this could cost us our deal with um, Verizon. Um, so I, I I couldn't quite figure out why they would not have disclosed why they would have potentially been able to avoid disclosing under the data breach laws, but they say that there were no, um, as far as they can see, no credit card information was compromised. And maybe if you read um, through some of the state laws, at least some of the state laws, uh, it's not a um, uh, account if, if, if there's no account information along with the name, um, you don't have to disclose. I think that probably doesn't work, but maybe in 2014, it did provide a legal basis for not doing a broad disclosure. Uh, at any rate, uh, the SEC is not going to be happy with that, is my guess, because they believe that they were the, uh, telling people to disclose major intrusions uh, without regard to whether they uh, compromised individual data. So um, they're... Um, the other story that just broke uh, is that apparently Adult Friend Finder uh, had 412 million accounts uh, disclosed to a hacker. Uh, um, that makes them almost as big as Yahoo and a good deal more embarrassing because apparently this is a Adult Friend Finder's uh, basically uh, adultery and porn uh, sites, uh, which may account for why it has so many subscribers. Um, the Russians are suspected, at least in the Yahoo case, uh, or the Chinese, uh, uh, and at the same time, they are getting ready to prosecute uh, um, LinkedIn for not having moved data uh, to Russia, where it'll be a good deal easier to get at. They won't even have to hack for it. Uh, Maury, did you uh, take a look at what the Russians are planning to do? planning to do is to block LinkedIn. It looks like it could happen any day. A Moscow court has said that it's violated the law that you referred to, which passed last year requiring personal information on Russian citizens to be stored inside the country. It's not entirely clear why they picked LinkedIn, because there appear to be other social networks that haven't complied yet. Uh, maybe it's the business angle. Maybe it's the Microsoft deal. And, uh, or, may, or maybe it's maybe, uh, it's here's, an independent here's, court decision or retaliation for what the U.S. has said about uh, trying to influence the election, which may have had some success. Um, but um, what, what's more interesting for me is this is part of a broader 
and really gathering steam data localization trend. We talked on last week's podcast about the new Chinese cybersecurity law, which will impose data localization rules in China next year. And this is part of a broader trend of laws around the world, driven both by law enforcement concerns and data protection concerns. And some companies are using lo- building local servers as a feature to, uh, uh, you know, to show that they're better at complying with these things than others, like Microsoft did in Germany. So it's a really interesting trend that I've been talking about for a couple of years now and really seems to be gathering steam. And I think... Um the uh, election of Donald Trump probably plays into that in two ways. First, uh, um, you can use him as a boogeyman anywhere around the world, uh, with the possible exception of Russia and Israel, uh, as you know, the end, uh, you know, end times are upon us, uh, and Americans can't be trusted, and they'll steal your data and do weird things with it. Uh, um, he becomes a poster child for that. And remarkably, that uh, that view is held nowhere more firmly than in Silicon Valley. Uh, and so the idea of moving data offshore to protect it from the United States government probably has appealed to the French and to the Russians and the Chinese, but also to uh, the you know the the grandees of Silicon Valley. So uh, they, there won't be a lot of resistance to localization, is my guess. Um, you know, the Silicon Valley has traditionally resisted constraints on their flexibility to build architecture, but you combine it with the economic incentives to say, hey, you know, we're, we're helping the locals, which, which may help their business anyhow. And I think that we're going to see this um, increasing. Yeah, I think you're right. My guess is they picked on uh, LinkedIn because LinkedIn is not exactly dominating the Russian market. So they probably figured here's a property owned by a big company that we can afford to uh, uh, to cut off and we aren't going to hear from um, powerful people inside the government that they really, really needed uh, this particular service. Yep, but it won't be the first if um, if tensions like this keep heating up. Oh, I think that's right. No, and, and they, it, won't be the la- it won't be the last. Yeah, I, I think we're going to uh, we're going to see this uh, in a lot of places, uh, and uh, uh, the U.S. government is not well positioned to stop it, and I'm not sure Silicon Valley is going to fight it very hard. All right. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, a, a lot of what's going on here, uh, we'll talk a little bit about this, is the tension between the original vision if, if in the 90s of uh, uh, what companies were doing on the Internet as uh, – uniquely requiring that they not take responsibility for um, their users' activities. Uh, and that's a principle that, as we'll discover, is really under pressure everywhere except perhaps the United States. Uh, uh, but even there, um, the Section 230 immunity is uh, it's being challenged in way, weird ways, and and there was just a case that came out of the Ninth Circuit, uh, um, uh, no, sorry, uh, Northern District of California, uh, that illustrates just how shaky 230 can be. Right. Yep. So this case involved a recording artist who claimed that uh, Google, who owns YouTube, um, wrongfully removed its video from YouTube, relocated, and set the view count to zero. Um, and the re- recording artist alleged that 
it had been accepted into a radio channel's marketing program um, meant to promote traffic to the video and that Google's actions inter- intentionally interfered with that relationship um, and that it also breached the website's terms and conditions. Um, and the court... This is a big deal because, you know, lots of people make some money from YouTube. Like it, it takes right. a million views just sort of as table stakes, but you can make a you know, a decent middle-class living on uh, uh, YouTube videos, but you have to have the traffic, and, and setting the views to zero kind of wipes you out. Right, exactly, especially if you're kind of part of a, a commercial relationship that's meant to be produ- to, to be promoting that traffic. Um, so the court found that the Section 230 immunity um, barred the, the tort claim for intentional interference um, because removing the video was part of the Google's publishing function, so it fell under the immunity term, um, but it didn't apply to the breach of contract claim, which involved the website's terms of service because uh, Google's duty under that claim arose out of the contract um, and what it had agreed to under the contract and not solely out of its role as publisher. So exactly the same facts, but because yep. the, the claim was, well, you breached contract, uh, it survives the 230. Yes, exactly, and, it, and it's following another Ninth Circuit case uh, that kind of came out the same way. So it seems like um, if you can find a contract or a terms of use to support your claim, you can you can kind of find your way around Section 230. So the exact opposite of all that 230 hand-wringing about whether we really should hold people, you know, uh, big web uh, social media companies responsible for the terrible things their users say, completely out the window in Germany, it looks like, uh, uh, where... A number of Facebook and, uh, uh, officials at the top of the agency are now under criminal investigation as a result of a complaint, uh, uh, claiming that, uh, they didn't, uh, Facebook didn't take down hate speech fast enough. Uh, I, and there's like apparently 400 examples of hate speech being used. Uh, this was, um, this claim was filed in Hamburg and rejected uh, on the theory that uh, uh, when Europe was enthralled to the idea of protecting social media against liability for users, uh, um, there was also a decision that only one jurisdiction ought to govern the rules for that, and the jurisdiction was Ireland. Uh, um, uh, the Munich prosecutor in Bavaria, however, has said, yeah, no, 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 that's, uh, that's so 1990s uh, uh, and is proceeding with a hate speech investigation. Uh, some of this investigation is pretty uh, – some of the claims of hate speech are uh, – in the U.S. we would call them robust – speech rather than hate speech, uh, uh, unless we are at the receiving end, uh, in which case we'd uh, we'd want them taken down ourselves. But uh, um, uh, the fact that the Germans are uh, investigating this and might actually proceed with criminal investigations gives you a sense of the way Europeans are trying to shrink the space for um, speech on uh, uh, social media, and, and we're going to see that. Uh, we're probably going to see that in the U.S. too. Uh, uh, I don't know if you followed this, um, Maury, but there was a big debate. There is a big debate uh, now on the left whether fake news was responsible for Trump's victory, that uh, uh, Facebook uh, uh, is alleged to have um, 
put out face fake news, allowed fake news to uh, uh, to go viral, um, and um, that more there was more fake news on the right than on the left, uh, and uh, people are claiming that um, Facebook ought to do something about fake news. I think that's going to be tough and. So far, Facebook is resisting the idea, but uh, uh, the pressure is coming from all directions to shrink the amount of uh, debate on uh, on social media. It's going to be an interesting fight. Uh, three quick hits. Um, enormous DDoS attack on Russian banks. Couldn't happen to a nicer bunch of people. Uh, Maury, anything else to say about that? Well, DDoS attacks are nothing new, but it's got the same angle that we've been seeing as this seems to be an Internet of Things network. And this is a, it's a really disturbing problem because there is no way to patch these things, no incentive to patch, and often um, no way at all to patch. Uh, so it's a huge escalation. The other bit that I think is interesting is um, people are starting to talk, as we've said recently, about um, – you're coming clean that states are using affirmative um, cyber uh, uh, um, so are going offensive cyber attacks, and um, who knows? You know, with the U.S. Um, having concerns about Russia interference with the elections, could they do something like this? Uh, it doesn't look like this one is, but it's getting to be really. Uh, Worries, increasingly worrisome threat environment out there. I think. Yeah, I hope the, I hope the Russians never figure out whether it was uh, us and and live in uh, uncertainty for a substantial amount of time. Uh, and um, let's see. Oh, speaking of the Russians, uh, uh, somebody probably the Russian the GRU is suddenly uh, uh, sending a mass. Uh, spear phishing campaign to a bunch of think tanks in uh, Washington, which tells me that uh, the GRU is, is as surprised as everybody that its efforts to influence the American election might have actually borne some fruit. Uh, and now they're rushing around trying to make sure that anybody who might be uh, in the Trump administration has already been pwned before they start work. Uh, so that's... Um, uh, that's uh, the news from Washington. And um, I guess uh, last thing, Amazon has to repay kids um, uh, in-app purchases uh, using uh, uh, their uh, parents' credentials. Uh, this just means that Amazon is back where everybody else is that, that allowed in-app purchases without sufficient uh, parental permission. Anything else there? Uh, no, they're going to let them do it in a notice and uh, reimbursement kind of process as opposed to a lump sum which is a little different than the settlements everyone else agreed to. But, um, but yeah, basically basically the same as everyone else. All right. Uh, Maury, Katie, thank you so much for uh, uh, doing the news roundup. And now we're on to our interview with Paul Rosenzweig and Shane Harris. Okay. So um, we've got both Shane and uh, uh, Paul here. Uh, and the question on the table is uh, what – does a Trump administration mean for cyber law, for technology, for Silicon Valley? Uh, Paul? Well, I think at the highest level, the answer is nobody knows, because I'm pretty sure Mr. Trump doesn't know. Yeah. Um, leaving that aside, uh, I think that it's going to be a very great challenge for the Trump administration to find the people who can actually give effect to policy. The culture in Silicon Valley is libertarian slash 
Democrats, so not a lot of those people are going to want to come in. The people who are here in Washington with a lot of uh, cyber uh, policy expertise from the last administration say many of them are in the never Trump camp, and mm -hmm. so they're either not going to want to go in, or, or if they've changed their mind, Trump will not take them anyway. Um, so uh, the interesting question is going to be, where does he find the cyber-savvy talent that can make sensible policy with enough tech background to actually do it? My guess is that uh, the long-term trend will be away from people who know the tech and towards more of the law and ordery people, right? Uh, Rudy Giuliani said he might want to do that, right? He's, he was interested in DHS. I, I right, think. he's interested in DHS. Yeah. Now, I, Giuliani has a lot of law and order background, a lot of policy chops in, in, in expertise, mm -hmm. but his entire knowledge of cyber is derivative of his consultancy and thus, you know, not even first order implementation knowledge. So that's the type of person that I'm going, I'm expecting. So what I would tend to expect is more leaning into policies that are um, less tech savvy and more blunt in their in their nature. That's just a very That's overarching true. view. Shane, what do you think? Is there really a, a, a talent uh, um, uh, problem? Well, I think as we're as we're sitting here talking about this this week, you know, in the <clears throat> coming up on a week anniversary of the election. Yeah, I mean, there seems to be, from everything that our reporting suggests, a, a scramble that's on to find people to fill jobs uh, that uh, it's been very difficult to persuade them to take. Um, you know, I've been talking to people who have said they've been approached, and, you know, these are some talented people, but they're not the people you would expect to be approached uh, if, you know, if maybe if a Marco Rubio or a Ted Cruz had, had won. Uh, so, yeah, there's some element of that going on now. Um, it's been reported that President-elect Trump was surprised to learn after his meeting with President Obama that he had to replace much of the staff in the White House. So there's just a, a sort of a, a kind of coming to grips, I think, with the magnitude <clears throat> of the job ahead. But, OK, so they'll do that. There have been transitions that didn't go smoothly before. There is a playbook for, I guess, for the rocky transition, and you try and find people and bring them on. Um, what I'm looking for, and I'm really curious to see how this kind of lands in his lap on day one, uh, is what to do in response to the Russian hacks of the election. So you have uh, a current administration and an intelligence community that has said that Russia positively, at the highest levels, uh, authorized an attempt, a cyber attempt to interfere with the U.S. elections. Uh, <clears throat> that's a, a highly unusual statement that they made. Uh, it's highly unusual to attribute it to officials by rank and also to, you know, impute a motive. Right. Uh, and you have a president-elect who has consistently said that they're wrong and that there's no evidence of this. So how does that land? You know, and I can imagine just sitting here now, he does very little about it to respond. But I think that's also going to send a signal to many people in the intelligence community and particularly in the areas of, of cyber policy and cybersecurity uh, about uh, the new commander-in-chief. And I... I, I would imagine, and certainly people I talk to about this, are are bothered by the fact that he doesn't seem to think that the intelligence community has it right and doesn't want to respond. I'll actually press or might on, not respond. I'll actually press on that and say um, two things. First, I wonder if the Obama administration will will make it easier on him by doing something beforehand. Yeah. Um, I I would think that they are giving serious consideration to that, notwithstanding the fact that the general rule is don't um, don't do anything in your lame duckery 
to disrupt the transition. But the other thing is... But let me, let me push on that because um, it's one thing to to do hard things that you know the, the new guy uh, would support, but which would be awkward for him to do because it makes enemies that he probably would not like to make in his first few months. Um, it's another thing to take tough action if you're afraid that the new guy is going to come in and undo it in a day. I think that's right. I mean, I think that makes it more difficult for the Obama administration to act. I, I mean, I would guess that they're not going to for precisely that reason. Um, but then the other th- the thing that I, I do think is more likely to happen is it, it's not just that he won't do anything. Um, it's that he's likely to not do anything in the face of, you know, a concerted policy effort by all of the careerists around to ask him to do something. I mean, he is going to be presented on day one, not just with the bold statement, it was the Russians, but it was the Russians. Here are your four options. Here's how we know. This is why we're a hundred percent certain. Uh, here are four options for action. Here are the pros and the cons for each of them. Um, here are the consequences for adverse to our own interests if you don't do anything mm-hmm. in terms of you know, lack of respect. And, you know, so, so he's gonna, the, the bureaucracy, when it wants to move a politico, can box him in quite a bit. Um, and, and this is something that's important enough that I'm gonna guess that, you know, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and, and the, and the, uh, commander of Cybercom and, uh, the DNI, deputy DNI, who, who are hangovers, they're all gonna have, um, a plan. Yeah, but, uh, you know, it, it, if there's anything emerging about uh, uh, President-elect Trump's views about the, the international order, <laughs> it's that um, we're bound for another reset in our relations with uh, Russia. You know, maybe we can cooperate on Syria, etc. cetera. Um, if you think, even if you aren't sure that that's what you're going to do, if you think maybe that's what you want to do, do you lead with sanctions? Well, probably not. But well, this, this is I mean, to your point, though, Paul, about the rule being mostly that you don't disrupt in the as in the <clears throat> in the outro, as it as as it were. If the administration really wanted to box him in a little bit, they could sanction you know a bunch of people now and essentially dare him to lift those sanctions on his first day in office. I mean, there, I mean, they, they, they were, they were, yes. the reporting has been up to now that. The administration was always waiting until after the election to do something. They just assumed it was going to be President-elect Clinton that they did it with. So those plans are kind of coming into shape, and they're there. They could absolutely do it. It seems like it's his right. But that would be a way of certainly getting President Trump off on the uh, – in terms of the reset foot, well, like and, handing him the button and saying, here, wouldn't you like to push it? So, you know, um, let's – you know, there, we're already getting hints that uh, uh, the – Obama-Trump relationship is going to be more comfortable than anyone else is comfortable with, either uh, uh, Obama's uh, uh, supporters or Trump's. Uh, Trump is Obama's third term. uh, (laughs) Well, I I think um, the president could, I suspect, sell this. Yes. I, I, I mean, I don't think Mr. Trump really knows what he thinks about these things. In many ways. And, you know, the reset in terms of his characterization of Obamacare that happened, I mean, maybe that won't hold, but I wish we knew. I wish we knew more about it. Well, it's very telling that, I mean, also to me, look, I, look, I, I, there was, I think there's 
they're sort of what the political press covered from that meeting, which was like, oh, he seemed very humble, and you know, mm-hmm. Trump seemed this or that, and I kind of put that aside and said, you know, wait an hour. It's like the weather. But the fact that the meeting went much longer than anticipated suggested to me that Trump probably had a lot of questions that he wanted to get answers to. And the fact that he did come out pretty quickly and pivot on health care suggests to me that uh, if you are sort of the last person in the room with him and make a persuasive case, then maybe he sticks with it. I don't don't imagine that, you know, two days from now he'll necessarily have the same position. But I'm, I'm with Paul that I don't know that he's really thought deeply about some of these policy questions because I, I'm not convinced that he really thought he was going to win. Yeah. And he had, up to now, he hasn't evinced any kind of deep policy thinking. Well, I think Stuart, Stuart's right. I mean, there there are a couple of basics that I think are going to be constants. Uh, anti, anti-global trade, mm-hmm. pro-Russia, more, more, more or less, um, pulling back on troop commitments overseas, yep. except for bombing the snot out of ISIS, um, you know, those are things, but none of those are cybersecurity. So, I, I, I mean, well, I really think it's an open book for that. So, I think the one thing, I think one of the few things that made it into his uh, uh, speech in Gettysburg uh, about cyber was about technology at all, was a commitment to do more and better on cyber. Now, that's not exactly deep, uh, but it, it uh, it's directional. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it cuts against the caution that you're suggesting you might have with respect to Russia. It's like, to the limited extent one reads anything in it, it's like, okay, give me more tools, Cyber Command. Tell me more things that you can do, both um, uh, at at the war uh, armed attack level and, more importantly, give me more tools at the sub-attack level, the disrupt, degrade kind of level, um, so that I can put them out. And, And that would be, I think, perfectly consistent with his... Worldview of the U.S. as uh, uh, instigator, right? Right, rather than uh, the more reflective uh, sense that one has about President Obama's response to the world, which is letting it come to him. And we should remember too, and you both know this very well, that he is in that period now where he is learning for the first time what those capabilities are, right? What plans are in place? What the tools are? What actions are already ongoing? Um, I, I imagine that in that 90-minute White House meeting, let's not forget that was the meeting where President Bush said to President Obama, there are two things you need to know about and keep, drones yeah. and Stuxnet. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I, I think that, you know, insofar as let's just take China for, for a moment, and he's talked about getting tough with China and negotiating better deals with China, but they're ripping us off. Well, if he didn't realize it now, they are ripping us off in cyber, of course. Right. He's, he's, that won't take him long to figure out. Uh, and I imagine that he might want to know, well, what are the things that we can do back to them? And so this is going to be very interesting, I think, for people in cyber command and the intelligence community, because now you may have a president that says, no, damn it, we have these tools. Let's start using them. Let's start being more assertive and aggressive. And up to now, we haven't really had that. The administration has been very reluctant to use these tools in an offensive capacity. I think that's probably right. That um, you know, all presidents are, you know, that part of the intelligence community's job and the Defense Department's job is to persuade the president that uh, um, they're the source of very cool capabilities uh, and that he should rely on them heavily for those cool capabilities. And I think you could sell cool capabilities to, to yeah. President Trump. Uh, you can sell them to almost any president, right? Exactly. I mean, yeah. They always kind of go for it. <laughs> Needy Coolio, right? Yeah, right. right. But, well, and it gives him some, probably some comfort, too. I mean, if, we're, if, if, we, if we take that as a premise, and I <laughs> think this is probably right, that, and not unlike many other of his predecessors, 
uh, he's having a sort of, you know, OMG moment, <laughs> a little bit of the deer in the headlights about the enormity of the job, uh, and maybe he's a little bit behind, more behind the curve than others. Knowing what these tools and capabilities are that allows you to put, you know, put yourself forward and make change and act proactively could be something of a comfort. Um, now, he has no experience using them. Uh, hopefully, he'll listen to his advisors to say, you know, yeah, we could go, you know, zap somebody's network, but here are the five things that are going to happen, and here's why your two predecessors didn't do that. But I would imagine that he'll just, you know, naturally be looking for some things that he can cling to so he doesn't feel like he's drowning. I mean, if I, the other thing that I would say we, we know about Trump, President-elect Trump, so he has a bias towards action. Yes. Just just generically, not just in cyber, not just in military, but, you know, he has a bias towards doing things, not sitting back and letting things happen. You could call it lack of patience or, or, or strategic patience, or you could call it, um, you know, taking the strategic initiative. Mm-hmm. Fine, but he has a bias towards action. Um, I think the interesting cat thing is going to be um, how much of what he wants to employ will trench upon uh, legal restrictions that will have him bumping up against the JAG officers at Cyber Command or, or things like that. Um, you know, we're, we're still in the process of developing a body of law with respect to the application of cyber force that is different, I think, from the law in the kinetic field. And so there's a lot of ambiguity there, and the natural reaction so far has been to take that ambiguity and stay back from the line, right. pretty much. Um, a, a president with a bias for action would want to take that ambiguity and push to the line and and explore where it is, and that is going to uh, cause a lot of heartburn, I think, uh, at uh, in the JAG Corps. Well, uh, boy, I, uh, nobody is uh, deserves a little uh, heartburn more than the JAG Corps, right, <laughs> which has been riding way too high. I mean, you know, you know, lawyers don't win wars; uh, they tell you how not to win them, uh, I, and uh, we've given them way too much authority over our military activities. Uh, Charlie Dunlap called call the Baker hotline. <laughs> yes, he, he, he did say I, I, that I should never be allowed to speak to uh, junior uh, JAG officers for fear I would uh, destroy their morale. I think or corrupt them. Yeah, for, for those who don't know, uh, General Dunlap is a former deputy JAG at uh, yes. deputy. The judge advocate in the Air Force who who thinks lawyers are important. Yes, but you know we we've we've actually come closer together and uh, <laughs> since he's left. left Sorry, government. I didn't mean to hide. I, uh, but I, I that at, attitude I suspect, depending on who becomes the uh, Secretary of Defense, it would be easy. It would be easy for the new Secretary of Defense to say, "Geez, the Jags didn't run everything when I was the." Um, assistant secretary for whatever at uh, DOD. Uh, I, and this president is not, uh, unlike President Obama, is not going to say, well, wait a minute, are you sure you've checked all the legal traps? Uh, he, he, he would be more likely to say, great, go get them if you said, I'm going to roll over these lawyers. I I think one thing that's been interesting to me, just and this is just purely anecdotal, but in, in talking to people over the past several days, <clears throat> the place where I detect the most uh, anxiety and thoughts of should I leave the government now before the inauguration is among lawyers. And I think that's interesting. And I, I hear it less among operational mm-hmm. types of people. 
Uh, and I'm not sure exactly what that says, and it's not a scientific sample. Well, probably but the operational guys are just going to say, I'll do it if the lawyers tell me. <laughs> well, that may be it. Yeah, yeah. The lawyers yeah. are the ones who, who, who they're, they're, they're the, the hot shoe in the brake. <laughs> right. And that's true. And from what we can detect so far, I mean, a lot of, in these national security positions, one place they are turning to, it seems, is people who have more operational experience than they have policy experience. So, People who've been more in the field, maybe, and less in the, the hallways of, of the corridors of power, which may produce a, a different character to the agency. But it also speaks to maybe, I just wonder, if, if these are sort of the resumes that you're getting in, mm-hmm. and these are the kinds of places where you are finding a receptive talent pool, as opposed to the people saying, you know, forget my number and never call me again, um, if that starts to maybe at least to some degree in his initial day, is shaped for the president-elect, his sense of what's the possible. kinds of what's possible and the kinds of people who we're mm-hmm. going to hire. Um, and I don't know how he fe- – I know, look, in his own life, and I've had some experience with one of his lawyers, um, you know, he views them as extensions of his, you know, aggression. I mean, they are right. very much attack dogs. Right. Uh, to, to have a, a lawyer class, if we can call it that, that is going to – you know, tell him all the things you cannot do oh, yeah, is no, going to no. be a real shock. Well, that, that actually goes back to this bias towards action. Operators also have that same bias for action. That's why they become operators. That's why you put them in the SEAL Team 6, right? Yeah. You know, they, they don't want to sit around and, you know, uh, with the division in quarters in, in Germany, they want to go out and charge the full to gap. Right? You know, and, and if personnel is policy, uh, we should really think what a – uh, you know, Mike Flynn as national security advisor does to all of these, these calculations. I mean, from people I've talked to today, it seems like it's not a done deal with him, but he's very close to being, uh, to getting that position. And, and that will effectively make him the president's military advisor. Mm-hmm. He's, he's sort of conduit into the world of, uh, uh, soldiers and spies and all of these because, you know, he's a, he's a general. He ran a very large intelligence agency and he's been with him all the way. And, and I think that there is both maybe a bias towards action on the part of General Flynn for sure. And there is a view about the nature of uh, both, uh, as he would call it, radical Islam and the things that the previous administration did not do to counter it. And he might also he put that in the cyber realm. I mean, General Flynn has talked a lot about ISIS's use of mm-hmm. propaganda, of social media for recruitment. So my point is, he has a view of the battle space. Well, right. he knows he knows he knows quite a bit about what can be done. Yes, what has yes. been done, uh, and, and where the lawyers has, will tell you you can't do. Exactly, yeah. and he has a pretty clear idea of what he'd like to do yeah. uh, because he was, you know, unlike practically everybody else uh, who's likely to be in this administration, he was in uh, until a few years ago. Yeah, that's right. And he's, and he's the only person in the inner circle who you can say that about. So uh, speaking of then what might be done in this area, let's talk about um, um, extreme vetting for terror-prone countries. I think that's the uh, – speak. Yeah, the irony is we're not allowed to say the name uh, uh, because it would create legal trouble. But uh, you, mean, uh, you mean on the podcast? I can't no, no, say? No, oh, of course you can. Oh, okay. Uh, I can but, say but, Saudi Arabia? But the, but the administration or the, the, uh, the, uh, the Trumpistas mm-hmm. have been now saying we're going to have extreme vetting not for Muslims – but for terror-prone countries. Didn't we do that? I mean, you you and I did that 10 years ago. It was called NSEERS, the National 
I don't even remember what the acronym yeah, was. I, I, Emergency I, Entry Registration System. That's right. That's right. Everybody, everybody who was here, who was from one, one of seventeen of, countries, countries, right, and uh, everybody who entered, and right. we even had a yes. special lounge. I remember that. Um, Saudi Arabia Airlines paid a lot of money at Dulles to have a special lounge because all of their people had to spend four hours going through extreme vetting before entry, and, and they wanted to give them tea and, and cookies. I mean, not unreasonably, since four hours standing in line is a little hard after 14. Uh, so we did that once, yeah. right? Did it was it did it make a difference? In the, in the end, I mean, we kind of slowly got rid of that program, uh, but um, I don't think it did make much of it. No, I, I mean, you know. Uh, we do immense amounts of vetting, you know, of I- informational vetting, of, of backgrounds and, and data. We physical vetting and screening. And we can I'm pretty not, much do whatever. He, he can do whatever, whatever he, he wants, wants for on, arrivals. On, on, yeah. uh, granting or denying visas. Uh, maybe they'd have to have a few uh, uh, reg changes, but not much. No. Uh, I think that's right. What yeah. about um, refugees? Well, uh, you know, we... We annually set a goal. He's yep. going to change the goal, right? right? He's going to lower it. He's, um, the U.S. has uh, the discretion to seek the refugees from wherever it wants, so it can designate populations that it wants to give preference to. Uh, we have uh, historically given preferences to people fleeing, say, the, the troubles in Iraq because we sort of felt like we broke it. We got to buy it. Um, but, you know, there are ample numbers of refugees in Southeast Asia who have fled Myanmar. And right. uh, uh, there are the Karen and the, and the Chin. So they could, they, they, could, they could say, they could end the, 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 President Trump could end the Syrian refugee program uh, by February. Right. He could he, certainly do that. Um, you know, but there again, you know, it, there's a difference between changing your priorities and, and the idea that there's some more vetting that should be done, which I think is just kind of... Actually, we could do a better job of looking at the social media because yes. social media is something that uh, came along after all the big changes after 9-11 and was never integrated into the surveillance programs because by the time it came along, there was a, a lot of resistance to expanding surveillance programs. So you could do more probably on the social media front yeah. uh, it, it, with waivers. I mean, if, if you're a refugee applicant, you'll waive anything. Exactly. And that's also a place where he can do that and then uh, go out and publicly claim, see, I cracked down, I got tough, mm-hmm. you know, I understand social media, which he clearly does, by the way, I understand social <laughs> media. <laughs> um, I was talking with an administration official about these these programs, in fact, you know, the resettlement programs and the, and the vetting. Um, and, of course, as they know, and we all know, they are extremely vetted already. I think that there's – once people sort of, in, particularly in the White House, are kind of getting over the shock of, you know, an incoming administration, there's going to be an opportunity for them to brief him and say, look, let us show you. You said we had no idea who was coming in. Let us show you all the ways that we actually do know a lot about whose people are coming in. Do you think in it's going to matter? Ways we can. I don't know. See, this I is the thing. Right? Well, whenever the question is, will it matter? I, I think know. it's a gigantic I, question I, mark on so, everything. So, so you, you remember the Somali program. Yes. And, yeah. and my memory was that um, every Somali refugee had a complete dossier of fake documents yes. uh, and fake siblings. Yes, so they but we knew that they were fake, right? <laughs> well, no, we I mean, the vetting counts. We had to do that. DNA testing right? to figure yeah, out exactly, they were Exactly, exactly. So, so actually, uh, let me share with you my, my latest insight, which is the only constraint that I can think of on the president's discretion 
plenary discretion with respect to almost all the immigration program uh-huh. is going to be the precedent set by the uh, Fifth Circuit in restricting President Obama's discretion on the DA, uh, uh, DAPA, the uh, the deferred action. Program. Oh, they have to go through a notice and comment. Right, exactly. So, so all of a sudden, the thing that Republicans worked so hard to do, which was frustrate President Obama's discretion, is going to come back and bite President uh, Trump in the butt. Uh, you, uh, and our experience is, if the president wants it really, really bad, and everybody top to bottom is committed to getting it done, you can change. Law uh, rules going through notice and comment in about 18 to 20 months. Yep. Yeah. So that's that's world land speed record. So imagine this. President Obama says, I'm going to change that and come back to me in a year and a half and I'll show you. Uh, that's not my pre- that's not my image of of uh, President elect Trump. So how about H1B uh, uh, where the president, uh, the president elect has kind of said, to, uh, I think it's bad for Americans. We ought to give preference to Americans. I don't like what Disney did. Uh, uh, but I also want people who come here to study to stay and get good jobs. That's a great question. Uh, my best guess is that he's going to look around Mar-a-Lago and say, hey, we need these programs because I got to keep staffing up my buildings. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I mean, his rhetoric about jobs is inconsistent with his practice as a businessman at Trump Tower, at Mar-a-Lago, at the uh, uh, golf courses in Florida, wherever it is. Uh, so I'm I'm going to guess on this one that um, that his rhetoric will outstrip the reality. So let me give you one case where his, he has actually already started to walk the walk uh, in a very modest way. Uh, um, he got mad at uh, Tim Cook and Apple for their stance on crypto uh, and said uh, famously, hey, I just thought of this. Why don't we just stop buying their stuff? Uh, and I believe at that point switched from tweeting from an iPhone to tweeting from an Android mm-hmm. uh, phone um, and is still – I think people now believe they can tell which tweets are his yeah. because they come from the Android. Right. Uh, um, so um, – how serious a problem is this going to be for Silicon Valley and their campaign to make all of their products government-proof? It's going to be a hard problem for them. On the other hand, he can't get the whole government to stop using all American products because it, you know, I mean, if Microsoft stands with Apple, stands with Google, stands but with he, Facebook, he's, he's clearly not going to do it by uh, boycotting them. No, but then what is his pressure point against an entire? If the entire industry stands. United, which on this they seem to be pretty solid. You no, know, I, 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 I'm skeptical. I think there were some uh, events, you know, like filing amicus, that where it was, you know, you you had to show up, yeah. and there was no business penalty for showing up, and there was potential business penalty in 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 recruiting uh, engineers if you didn't put your name on one of those briefs. I'm not sure how deep that commitment is from all of those companies. Well, as I kind of mentioned at the at the at the head. I think that we're in for four years of uh, of deep conflict between the libertarian democratic zeitgeist of the valley and the law and order make America great zeitgeist of the Trump administration. One of the major co-founders of Uber is sponsoring initiative to secede for California to oh, yeah. secede. I, I, I don't think that's likely. And I will say this. The only thing they'd have is, to localize all their data. <laughs> the only thing that's going to be really interesting is, um, is Peter Thiel's, Thiel's role. 
Yeah, yeah. right. I mean, and and it's active know, now too. From yeah, it's active. He's yeah. going. He's going to try and be the bridge. And I will say this. I mean, I find it remarkable. It, I, I have very little good to say about Mr. Trump, but I find it remarkable that a. A, a gay Republican man has moved to that position without anybody caring. He's also, all. I think Teal's also a fairly divisive figure in his own right. In he is. Valley. He is. And certainly I can tell you for sure he is in the LGBT community. But, you know, but it's, but I think he will look to him to be some kind of a bridge, right? And, and there's this, there's, I think that maybe Trump looks at it as sort of like, I'm a businessman, you're a businessman too. But there's sort of this mercantilist instinct versus an entrepreneurial culture. Right. Those two things don't match up. Mm-hmm. And they will look at him and say, like, but the kinds of businesses that you that you engage in are fundamentally different than ours, and your business practices don't match with our social values. So that's going to be very, very difficult to bridge. Of course, if Jim Comey is still your FBI director, and he said at 60 Minutes last night, I'm not so sure, uh, then you can count on Jim Comey to be out there continuing to, you know, fight these I, I, pushy policies. Frankly, uh, anybody you put in that job is going to have that view. Yeah, probably so. Uh, and uh, so the question is whether Comey is a wounded spokesman for that point of view or uh, uh, can um, uh, continue. I mean, he's a very uh, articulate guy, but uh, uh, he really he really managed to make everybody mad at him yeah. uh, in this uh, in this campaign. Uh, so uh, it may be that uh, somebody new would actually uh, end up um, as Louis Free. Louis Free came in, I remember, in ninety. Two or ninety-one, uh, and immediately bought into the idea that we ought to have Kalia, yep. uh, and jammed it through after years of unsuccessful FBI lobbying to get it. So I'll make a prediction. I think the winds are behind the sails of the anti-encryption folks, and there will be some form of law or regulation that comes out um, in the next two years. Whether it's a Kalia-like mandate or a, uh, a Buy America incentive program that says we won't buy from anybody who doesn't, uh, you know, there's hundreds of levers and all. But but you know, Burr and Feinstein haven't changed their views. Burr's back with the wind behind his sails. Giuliani is on record as as on Comey's side, and he's going to get one of these positions. Who knows mm-hmm. which one? That's engaged. Um, Trump, to the extent that he has a view, is 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 again it. Um, uh, you know, if if the Silicon Valley people are gonna be able to fight it, they're gonna have a they're gonna have a tough time figuring out how to do that. All right, let me do lightning round. I just uh, you tell me whether this is going to happen in the in a Trump first term uh, uh, or not. Just yes or no. Uh, um, uh, Big antitrust cases come back and breaking up AT&T and uh, Amazon uh, uh, become the uh, the flavor of the uh, the term. You really want a journalist to make predictions after all this? Yes. Go for it. <laughs> I'll You're say not yes. a pollster. You're not <laughs> a okay. pollster. Paul? Uh, very much so. Especially, right. especially Amazon. Net neutrality uh, is completely redone. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And China... 35% uh, uh, tariffs and currency manipulation charges and a trade war? 35%. That's what they're that's, talking about. Oof, that's that's no, no. In, in the end, in the end uh, President Xi does an Obama on his uh, with the Vulcan mind melt and convinces him not to do it. Okay. All right. All right. 
Thank you. Uh, that was Paul Rose's wife, Shane Harris, making bold uh, uh, predictions that, of course, we now have on record. Yeah, and we'll please burn bring this tape back. after his broadcast so that nobody can hold me to account for it. All right. Uh, as always, the Cyber Law Podcast is open to feedback. If you've got uh, uh, different views about the likelihood of all those things, send your uh, uh, suggestions to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. I should say we got uh, feedback from the last uh, um, episode where I blamed the British and the Europeans for uh, getting out of step with U.S. Uh, uh, daylight savings time. But it turns out it was us who, after the Europeans had laboriously pulled themselves into uh, 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 line with our daylight savings, decided in the waning days of the Bush administration that uh, it would be greener if we expanded it, or maybe it would be better for Halloween trick-or-treat kids because they, they would be less likely to be run over. So our fault, not uh, not Europe's, um, and uh, you know it pains me to say that. But uh, send me uh, uh, comments, Podcast at steptoe.com, uh, or uh, leave comments on our uh, iTunes or podcast aggregators sites as long as they're accompanied by a five-star review. I don't care what you say. Uh, this has been episode 138 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Coming up, we're going to have Steve Weber and Betsy Cooper of the UC Berkeley Center for Long-Term Cybersecurity, John Markoff of the New York Times uh, and author of Machines of Li- Loving Grace, Scott Charney of Microsoft, who is even older in cybersecurity than I am, and Matt Green, assistant professor of Johns Hopkins Information Security Institute and somebody who pretty much disagrees with me on 90% of cybersecurity issues. That should be fun. We hope you'll join us uh, for those and other episodes as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.